Welcome to Moving the Needle, a podcast of the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology. I'm your host, Dr. Dina Valachi, president of the AANA. Thank you for tuning in. It is my pleasure to welcome Amy Showalter, author, PAC, and grassroots influence expert who helped thousands of advocates and leaders maximize their influence in the legislative and political process. Owner of the Showalter Group, her clients range from Bayer and Pfizer to Southwest Airlines and the National Restaurant Association. Welcome to the podcast, Amy, and please tell us more about yourself. Thank you so much, Gina. It's great to be with you all again, and congratulations on all the great work that the association continues to do. I mean, really a formidable grassroots advocacy force is your group, no doubt. And so it's been a delight to be with you over the years. And, you know, how I got to doing this kind of work is that once upon a time, many moons ago, was a lobbyist, worked in the state house in Ohio, and I became a lobbyist. And I frankly was a lousy lobbyist because I was more concerned about working with my volunteers, working at the grassroots, working with the members of the organization. And so when I'd be meeting with a lawmaker, I tend to be kind of a clock watcher or looking at my watch, you know, during the meetings and I wasn't terribly engaged, but and the time went really slow when I was in those kinds of meetings. But boy, when I spent time with the grassroots, getting them involved, it went really, really fast. And so um, went to Nationwide Insurance and managed their grassroots program for about 10 years and then started my practice in um, 2000. In 2000, I started my practice and I've been working with a variety uh, of groups, helping them engage in the process to influence and do it in a civil way and to improve their communications and influence capacity while they're at it. Well, thank you, Amy. I love how you just take something and really made it mold to yourself. And thank you for being such a supporter of Certified Registered Nurse Anesthetist. You've keynote the ANA events before in the past and sharing that concept of effective grassroots advocacy. So let's begin with the basics. Can you explain the concept of grassroots advocacy and why is it so effective, especially today? Well, the concept, when we go back in time and when I started with it at Nationwide Insurance, it was relatively, in terms of organizationally, relatively new. I remember people saying to me, are you going to keep your job? Are you going to get laid off? Because I'm not sure this grassroots thing is going to stick around. I'm not sure about this. (laughs) So what grassroots really means is simply that decisions and movements literally, you know, on the ground, in the trenches where people and ideas take root and are affected, not at the locus of power, shall we say? I mean, that's really what you know what it means by that. And it used to be a, a singular advantage if you had the grassroots advocacy capacity. Now it's required. I mean, nobody that wants to make a difference in the legislative process doesn't do that. It's a very common term now. Everybody knows what it means, and so it's fun to have seen it evolve. But like anything else, it can get abused and misused. And um, basically, it means that we're just the people who aren't in charge, who aren't in power are there making, you know, making the difference. And I would say that AANA has a fantastic culture of grassroots. I mean, from when I worked, I was looking at my notes and looking at thinking about the different folks I've met along the way, you know, Garolyn Thomas and others. She's from Ohio, so I have to mention her, give her a shout out. And uh, Sharon Pierce and Don Ressler, people who have been just great advocates for, I mean, going on 10, 15, 20 years. So you have a nice culture of that. And that's what's really important. And I think why you're so effective. Well, thank you. I know you are credited with pioneering the application of scientific influence principles of grassroots organizing. Can you share some of the key principles with us and how they would uniquely apply to grassroots organizing? Yes. Well, I became fascinated with that, fortunately, rather early in my practice. I don't know why I was doing this, but I remember distinctly it being a Friday evening 
in my home office, messing around online, trying to look up something on influence. And I came across a quiz, an influence quiz. And I took the quiz and I think there were 10 questions and I only scored properly on, I think, five of the 10. And I thought, who in the heck who wrote this quiz? What's this all about? Who is this person? Because I knew that I'm, I'm responsible for helping clients ethically you know, influence elected officials and the public and so forth. And so if I don't know it that well, then what does that say about me? And it really was a you know, learning moment for me. So I saw, oh, this quiz was done by Dr. Kelton Rhodes at Arizona State University and working psychology in Los Angeles. And so I looked him up and one thing led to another to where I became certified in Dr. Robert Cialdini's uh, methodology, the Influence at Work curriculum, and have since partnered with Kelton on, well, he partners with me on all of our research projects uh, and so forth. But what, what I think is really important about it, it, my light bulb moment with that, and why I think it's important is because um, many times we hear that we have to just educate people to get them to agree with us, or we have to communicate better, or we have to advocate better. And I'm not against advocacy, I'm not against communication or education, but those things don't influence. Influence is you have persuaded that individual to the point where they believe the decision is their own to agree with you on something. You know, I can advocate all I want, but advocating doesn't make me persuasive or influential, just like sitting in my or having a consultation with my CRNA makes me a certified nurse anesthesiologist. Okay? It does not do that. So we, we have to realize that there's advocacy and there's influence. And so as, when it comes to organizing, getting more people involved. There's lots of tactics in the influence playbook in terms of what the social science, and that's how we approach our work is we look at what's the evidence, just like you, your profession is all about evidence. Social science is a science, it can be taught. You don't have to be naturally persuasive or charismatic. So we like to look at what's the evidence, what's the peer reviewed literature say about different influence techniques, ethical influence techniques. And so when I look at organizing, like I said, there's hundreds of tactics you can use. But I think some of the biggest things are looking at the context that you're in. Context matters greatly. You probably have seen at AANA, you've probably seen your PAC contributions perhaps go up and your advocacy engagement go up when you have a very pertinent legislative issue before you. That means the context is different. When things are good, sometimes apathy breeds inertia. Apathy, or I'm sorry, success breeds apathy. Success can breed inertia. And we know that context is huge. And just a couple other things as it applies to organizing and the triggers on that. I believe that trust is huge and trust is garnered mainly through relationships, face-to-face -face contact. Bottom line, all the research we've done, really the platinum standard for influence. And this goes a bit to my point about context is loss framing. People are much more likely to engage in your cause if they know they're going to lose something versus gain something. And I think this is why Sometimes your opponents in the legislative, the nurse anesthesiologist opponents in the legislative arena can be worthy opponents and successful because they're always looking at, hey, here's the turf we're going to lose. Here's what we're going to lose to the CRNAs. So they're always on edge about that. And it affects all of us. People do not like to lose things. And that's huge. So you have to think, how do I ethically, is there truly something that our members will lose if they don't engage on this issue? And how can we communicate that and persuade them to get engaged? And then lastly, I would say the moral high ground. People really, wherever you're at, you want to be on the moral high ground. You want to be on the side of the angels. People want to be not only on the winner's side, they want to feel good about what they're doing. But actually, when we 
look at influence tactics and as it applies to organizing, Kelton, my colleague, has found over 100, 100 <laughs> tactics that can actually be used depending on the context. So you look at the context and then you base your tactics on that. You do good research, find out which tactics are probably going to move your audience is, is what you want to do. So it's always about you know, research, investigate, then create, then advocate. You know, it's don't just advocate without doing the investigative part, the research part, because that'll tell you what tactics to use for organizing. Well, that's fascinating. Now, with all those tactics, I want to ask you, the ANA has the largest pact in nursing, and our PAC is at the top of the 10 of the healthcare professional associations. So with that, what topics can you share with our audience about developing a meaningful and purposeful PAC that can actually help us move our needle? Yeah, and congratulations on the PAC, because again, you have a great culture of investment and a culture of giving, and I think people, they truly believe it. Because I, as I tell people, when you get your peers to engage in the pack. You have, the first sale is to yourself. You have to believe yourself before you can ask anybody else to believe that. So it's been great to talk with your folks about that over the years. And so I know that what's really changed, I really changed my philosophy a great deal on pack persuasion, as I call it, and having a purposeful pack, is that I've had clients say to me, hey, I'd like to create some collateral materials for our political action committee. I need PowerPoint, I need a speech, I need brochures, I need these kind of things, I need website content, all that. So we start doing that. And knowing what I know about the science of influence and how people are persuaded and knowing that you're giving for a pack, you're giving personal money mm -hmm. to a political cause that has no immediate return on investment or tangible benefit to you as an individual. And if you do get a benefit, it's something kind of tangential, like this person getting elected who you may never meet or know. And so it's a really big persuasion move. It's a big ask and not everybody's good at it. So you really have to believe in it. And I, as I was putting these things together and realizing how hard it was, I thought, oh, we really have to get some of the, the social science in here. And so I started realizing how we had to point out more to people, like, here are the groups allied against you, and here's what they're doing, and here's what their pack looks like, and kind of create that in-group, out-group dynamic. And what I realized from that is that has an emotional component to it. And, and that was a good thing. I mean, we want people, I don't think you educate somebody into a pack by talking about FEC rules and limits on contributions and blah, 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 you know, put me in a chirogenic trance, but that's important, but that can be footnoted. So, so we want to create, we want to make people to feel like this is our group. This is our team. This is my community. And there are these other forces and we're doing great things for our patients. And there are these other forces against us. And what that does then I found with our clients is it creates this emotional allegiance, which creates a purpose of bringing people together. It's not just about contributing to the pack anymore. It's about emotional fervor, emotional allegiance to the organization. That's what I, when I talk about a purposeful pack, I mean, let's have pack communications and messages and messengers who are, yeah, we're asking for contributions to the pack, but we're doing it in such a way that it's creating this desire to engage and to be on the team and to be even more involved. Well, you know, we know that storytelling can be a powerful tool. What advice can you share with CRNAs who are interested in telling their stories with their legislators? Well, I'm glad you asked about storytelling. It's my favorite topic. We used to call it narrative a lot, right? But now we're seeing that the word narrative is misused by the media. Narrative means fake facts now, or <laughs> false news, whatever. So if you hear me slip into that language, I apologize. I use story now as the word I like to use versus narrative. Let me share with you, I think, the, the top three or four things to think about when you're creating stories for pack engagement or grassroots engagement, and then the universal mistake that everybody makes. So number one, 
the story has to illustrate the point you're trying to make. I mean, you work backwards from your persuasion goal. A lot of people tell these stories that are interesting to them, but it has nothing to do with the ask of the legislator. <laughs> so you've got to make it relevant. That's important. And lack of flesh and blood characters in the story is a problem. People tend to think examples are stories and they're not. Stories have people, flesh and blood characters, and those flesh and blood characters have to be sympathetic. They have to be people we admire, people we want to root for, and they have to be people who are not, we know, as you mentioned, you know, the underdog story, David versus Goliath, really powerful, as long as David, the underdog, is not playing the victim card. We have to show that the underdog is trying really hard and has done everything they could to solve the problem, but they still can't, and by gosh, they're going to get in there and keep fighting. So story development is really the characters in the stories are incredibly, incredibly important. Third, you have to have details that transport the listener when they hear you. You want to set the scene so they can relate to where you're at. So you're taking them on this journey with you. And the reason stories, I'm always leaning forward in my seat, taking notes, learning. And one of the things I just uncovered probably a year ago, some research that shows that narrative, good narrative, good story creates a dopamine drip. And you're, I mean, we know dopamine does for us, right? It makes you feel good. You get immersed and you forget where you're at and you're into it, right? So if all these things, if I've got flesh and blood characters and they're sympathetic and they're fighting the good fight and their opponent is particularly uh, nettlesome and nasty, I may really, you know, get that dopamine drip going and be involved in that. And we, we know that another big point of the characters in the story is that you can't be the hero of your own story. That's hard for people a lot of times. I've worked with a lot of organizations where they're, volunteers get up and tell their story and I'll kind of critique them in real time. I will critique them, not kind of, I do. And they sometimes will make themselves the hero because they have under overcame a great obstacle, which is fine, but it's just in how they say it that we have to tweak a little bit and share, here's what I learned through that process. Not I'm such a great person now because of that process, but the biggest mistake that people make is they do not test their stories with a proxy audience. They tell the story to their advocacy staff. They tell it to their fellow CRNAs. They tell it to their spouse or their significant other, but they don't tell it to somebody who might be opposed to their point of view or the lawmaker that they're trying to persuade. And so in our practice, we like people to do that and set those opportunities up for them. So we're gonna, we're gonna distill a story from our point of view of social science, and then we're gonna get a proxy audience in front of them and say, tell your story to them, see what they think about it. And then we'll refine it even more. But it's like it's like in medicine, what you do and evidence, it's about taking these things that we know are important and making them better based on the evidence. And a proxy audience is a great way to do that with stories. So what I wanted to say and the good points that you put forward is we have a very highly engaged membership when it comes to advocacy. We are an all-in association when it comes into removing barriers to CRNA practice because we are a profession that puts patients first. We know that removing barriers to our practice will increase patient access to quality care and reduce costs. How can we turn that into a narrative that bolsters our grassroots advocacy story? Right. I think CRNAs are very good at this, better than other medical professions, is that you put the patients first. You're always about the patients, serving underserved communities, serving rural communities, serving veterans. I mean, that's everywhere on your website and your advocacy materials. And so keep doing that. I think that's really terrific. And so... Because we know that people, I mean, they understand that you're advocating for your profession. They get that. But they want to feel good, particularly a lawmaker who's not with you, is a little undecided. We want them to feel good about helping us. And when we put the underdog and the people we're serving first, they can feel a lot better about it than to say, 
hey, I want to expand their practice level so they get more business units and make more money or whatever. It's, you know, I know you don't talk that way to lawmakers, but, you know, in their head, sometimes that's what they'll, they'll be thinking. So it's a matter of putting the underdog first in a lot of those stories. So based on your book, The Underdog Edge, what are the distinctions between successful underdog advocates and less successful advocates? And how can we apply that to our profession? Oh, there are many. There are many. You know, I think of the um, unsuccessful ones as kind of the, the activists. You know, they're the ones that make all the noise and, and talk all the time, but they don't do much. Or they're there for a big splash, a big online splash. Uh, the biggest nuances between them and and Again, this was just born out of my obsession with really high-performing advocates. And what do they do differently than groups that are just as smart, have just as many resources, but not as successful, and they don't, or their advocates don't enjoy it? So unsuccessful folks are pretty loud. They're not necessarily nice. They like to put pressure on. They like to embarrass their opponent. They can be, like I said, the activist. The successful underdog is nice. They're tenacious. They've got grit. So they're in it for the long term, whereas the unsuccessful person is thinking, you know, if I just go in and make a big splash, you know, make myself feel good that I did something, do some virtue signaling, I can win. The successful underdog knows it's a longer term situation. The unsuccessful one also thinks it's all about them. A lot of times they're in it for their own glory and their own edification, whereas the underdog is truly about the bigger purpose and about helping others. It's almost like a duty. A lot of them would say that to me in the interviews. They they said, well, I just, you know, I had to, I couldn't do anything else after this happened, or I had to do it for these other people. They've said the words, I felt it was my duty. The other and I mentioned this earlier point about the unsuccessful ones is that they play the victim card. They want people to feel sorry for them. They want somebody else to help them. And that's okay. I mean, you, everybody needs help now and then. But when you talk to the big dogs, as I say, the people whose minds were changed, they will say, boy, you know, when I saw everything that person tried to do for themselves and they still couldn't get any help, I knew I was their last resort. I knew that I was the only way they could help them. They paid their taxes. They did everything they were supposed to do. And they still didn't get any help. See, so there's, you know, and I'm not the smartest person in the room, but I'm really, really good at pattern detection and listening. And so I realized that what it was, was they want to know that you're trying hard and that you're not trying to be a victim. That's really important. And I would say, too, that in closing on this part, where when we talk about the successful ones, they're also very aware that it's a long term battle. And they're very aware about what I call the parity influence dynamic, meaning that when they go talk to a lawmaker, they're not satisfied with the lawmaker saying, hey, your organization is really great, or you really know a lot about this topic, or AANA sure sent the right person to talk to me. No, they want that legislator to say, yes, I will vote for you and sign on this dotted line. And they, they want the complete commitment. They, because what when I talk about parity influence, what I mean is that there's parity, it's equal. The legislator many times is trying to influence you just as much as you're trying to influence them. And they're probably better at it because that's what they do for a living. Lawmakers influence people for a living. That's all they do. So it's their job. They want you to feel good about meeting with them. They want you to tell your friends what a great person they are. And to do that, they'll say whatever they have to, but doesn't mean they're voting with you. But the successful underdog picks up on that, knows that, and they know it's not over till it's over. And that's so true. It's, it's everybody has to walk away with a little piece of positivity, right? You never want to walk away from a situation where you're not. So as we look to the future, what are some predictions you have for grassroots advocacy and PAC engagement? Yes, I think about this a lot because I am very heavily involved in the profession and I hear what a lot of uh, professional uh, advocacy professionals, PAC professionals talk about and how they grapple with different challenges and so forth. Um, I do remember that when 
uh, online, when social media tools came out, and even before that, when web tools came out, I remember people in the profession being absolutely giddy that the groups who, that it was going to, this is like laughable now, but this is what people would say, that it would increase and help democracy. All these online tools were going to help democracy because it helped the dialogue. Well, we've seen what that's done. And they also were giddy in that it would level the playing field, right? These groups that have no money will be able to compete with these groups that have money. But no, the people with money learn how to use the tools too. The power structure is pretty much as it's always been. So my prediction, based on a lot of that going on in in the past, is that face-to-face communication will always rule the day in terms of persuasion. When you are at, you know, do it as much as you can, as often as you can, whether it's Zoom for now, you know, depending on where you're at. We found that in research we did probably 15 years ago, that that was one of the top factors. The number of face-to-face meetings a group has between their lobbyists and their advocates was a a predictor. So we're taking it through logistic regression. For those of you who love stats, it was a predictor of a legislator changing his or her mind. That's big. That's big. So that's really important. We also found it with our grassroots influence pulse research that we do biennially, and we found out that the groups that were more successful were much more intent on meeting in person with people. The groups that, Now, they're self-reporting that they were successful, but some groups self-reported and said, we're not successful. And sure enough, when you asked them about their tactics, they were all about online tech tools. So that, I, I believe, because the big thing about face-to-face is it shows you're willing to make the effort, particularly now. In I've got some clients that have done in-person events during COVID or, you know, probably a year after it started and so forth, that's a pretty big commitment. I mean, you're showing that, you know, we care about this very, very much. We want to meet with you in person. I also believe that because of the incivility that's going on in the world, political polarization that's going on, my prediction is that is another reason why the, the face-to-face interaction with volunteers or keeping them together in the fold is going to be really important. And face-to-face decreases hostility between adversaries as well. So I believe that because of that as well, that volunteer leadership, like volunteers leading other volunteers, which I know you have a great structure and culture of, that's going to be increasingly important. That Because what I'm hearing from some clients, some not clients, is that in these associations that people join because they are like-minded in pursuit of these big goals, people are getting in political fights in the online portals and so forth over legislative issues and who the PAC gave to because this PAC, this legislator said something controversial about something that has nothing to do with their legislative issues, but they don't care. They still get ticked off. So, so we're really emphasizing that as a point of, okay, how do we empower volunteer leaders to not just teach people how to do advocacy, but to lead others and build relationships. So that is mitigated as much as possible. And then lastly, I believe that in the world of hyper-abundant content and noise, that authenticity and the authenticity of organizational communications, of your personal authenticity, those messages and messengers, you know, is it authentic or is it propaganda? People can smell it. They don't like it. They need to know both sides of the story many times. And I believe that is something that some groups are great at it. Others, they're so, you read their stuff and you think, did an automaton write this? What, who wrote this? <laughs> it just it doesn't have a human voice to it. So authenticity, very, very important. And we've done some research on that. And we there is a formula for authenticity, for what audiences believe, what people believe to be authentic. So again, it's something that you can increase in yourself. Of note, we found, the research has found that female leaders in their mid, I don't know why this demographic, but female leaders in their mid-40s are deemed to be the most empathetic and authentic of any leadership group in the country as of 
a year ago's research. So we'll see if <laughs> that continues. Well, I can actually say that's probably because we've had enough. <laughs> And we just tell it like it is at this point. I'm a little older than 40, but I think you get to a point where you just become very authentic and you just say it as it is. And I agree with you. It takes authenticity, a correct message, an honest message, and that it's not about the self. It's actually about everyone. And I think that's what everybody's leaning to now because it's been so divisive for so long. Anyway, I really want to thank you for being my guest, Amy, um, for joining me for an informative conversation about the importance of grassroots advocacy and building a purposeful pack. Um, enjoyed having you on Moving the Needle. So I would just like to say, please join us next time for another episode of Moving the Needle. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and like and subscribe, tell your friends, come back soon and be sure to visit ANA.com. Thanks again.